Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sober. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to number 635. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Yes, hello and back again. Uh, yes. Ian is horrible these bloody fortnightly shows coming out. It feels like I'm kind of getting a little bit disconnected from you, but hopefully you're sticking around. And to be honest, it's knocking me all the six. Six, not sick. I uh, I thought, honestly, working shifts, it was just, it's something that you get used to, but you do get yourselves all missed, you know, like your, your, your shift pattern knocks your routine. And I honestly thought it was Thursday, and I was so ready to record on Thursday to apologise for missing a day. Our bins, our cardboard recycling bins go out on a Thursday. I've put all that out and like cardboard that can won't fit in. So all that's on the street and it's only Tuesday. And the daughter's been putting us on a <laughs> Slimming World diet and making all me, me foods. And weird day is a Thursday. And I've already weird myself and it's Tuesday. So I've lost a power. I lost a pound. <laughs> so I'm just all the bloody cock here. But anyway, it's Wednesday. We as normal it's sorry, it's Tuesday now and like Patreon gets it first. So I am sitting down to record this. So I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have the main fiction is Bringing Down the Mast by Floris M. Cleaner. And this story first appeared in the Worlds of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror, Volume 3. So that is our main fiction today. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. 
So, let's jump into this fantastic story. Like I say, it first appeared in Worlds of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror, Volume 3. Floris M. Klinger is the author of more than two dozen short stories in Daily Science Fiction, Galaxy's Edge, Factor 4, and numerous publication. He lives in a 200-year-old house in the Dutch River District, but most of his writing is done on trains. Floris was the first Dutchman to win the prestigious Writers of the Future contest, as well as the first Dutchman to qualify for active membership of the Science Fiction Writers of America. He blogs about writing, real life and atrocious customer services on his website, and you can find more of his stories over there as well. Now, this story is narrated by Robert Roberto Suarez. By dear Roberto Suarez works as a community college student advocate and recruiter. By night, he geeks out at all things fantasy and science fiction, comic books and board games. He is the co-host and producer of Radio Westworld a podcast dedicated to HBO's science fiction series. And you can find him, Roberto, on the web at his website, robertosuarez.me, and on Twitter as well. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Bringing Down the Mast by Flores M. Kleiner Narrated by Roberto Suarez Four days ago, before dawn, Stepping into Moga's launch, Ferdy hesitated. The moonlight painted an undulating path of light on the calm waters of the Delftixhi Canal. Southward, Rotterdam lay in slumber, its sparse lights reflecting of the low clouds. Even as early as autumn, the electricity shortage had Rotterdamers live in darkness most of the time. Westward, the remains of the city of Delft sprawled in the dying gloom of night. For a moment, he visualized the offshore windmills this had all started with, out there, beyond the fields and the dunes. He turned around. Saladin. His lover's compact shape shrugged in the cold moonlight. Ferdy could just make out the melancholy smile playing around Sal's mouth a slight upward curve to those lips he had kissed so often, a shine to Sal's eyes. It's not too late, Sal. We can turn back, go home, forget the whole damn thing, forget Nanoferdy, relinquish my grand allocator title. I don't have to... Sal pulled his mouth into a crooked smile and shook his bald head. You do. Saladin, I... He closed the distance with one urgent step and slid his arms around Sal. Sal raised his face and brought his lips towards Ferdy's. No. Please, no kiss. Tears ran freely down Ferdy's cheeks. Not a kiss. He will... I won't remember later. Sal pulled back for a moment and gave Ferdy a look of compassion that threatened to rip apart the last remnants of his composure. Bullshit. With the smoky taste of Sal's lips lingering on his own, Ferdy steered the launch in a tight curve, turning back south on the canal towards Rotterdam. His hitching breath drowned in the roar of the outboard as he sped southward, the bow cutting a white V into the water. 
Eastwards, the sun burst over the horizon. Wisps of fog played over the fields. Maybe he was wrong about Moke. Maybe their old friendship still counted for something, even now. Maybe he would make the journey without incident, see the sun slowly climb into the morning sky, the ruins of Rotterdam take shape in the blue haze. Maybe he would reach to the Euromast and come to an understanding with Moke and with May. Yeah, and just maybe Utrecht would rise again from the glass tomorrow. That was about as likely as Moke not killing him. Ferdy chuckled through his tears. This was no way to spend his final minutes, his final thoughts. Maybe there was another maybe. In just a few minutes, after Sal switches on Nano Ferdy, maybe Sal, sweet stoic Saladin, would find out if the disturbed neural nanonetwork had absorbed enough of his personality to, to what? Be a friend? Love? With his hands firmly on the tiller, he cast a look over his shoulder. Far behind the launch, the old Delft University high-rise reached for the morning sky. Squinting his eyes, he could fool himself into seeing a compact, bald figure on the quay. Let me hold on to this image, he thought. Sal, on the quay, the city of deft slumbering and the exuberant, riotous colors of the sunrise. Let this be the last thing I see. Let me hold on to this. Let me... Twilight. I wake up to a lab drenched in gloom. The electron microscope against the opposite wall, a hulking gray tower. The pristine workbenches, lighter rectangles. The inner airlock door, a glimmer near the corner. The extinguished fluorescence leave only the feeble daylight seeping through the closed blinds. But when I went under, all lights were on, weren't they? And where is Sal? As I scan the laboratory space for any sign of my engineer lover, an even more pressing question dawns on me. Why did I wake up in the lab at all? The personality recorder is down the hall, separate from the clean rooms, far from the lab. I went to sleep there with the recording cap on my scalp and Sal by my side, his hand in mine. I can't think of any good reason why Sal would have moved me to the laboratory. We agreed that my presence would probably interfere with Nano Ferdi's... I don't feel a cap on my head. I don't feel my head. And when I reach for my head, nothing happens. I don't have hands. Involuntarily, I glance down, but while my field of vision obeys my mental command, I feel movement neither of my head nor my eyes. And though I recognize the glass walls and micromanipulators inside the containment silo, my sight seems blurred as if through a murky haze. Vertigo assails me, doubling when I realize the sinking feeling doesn't have a stomach to accommodate it. It dawns on me. I am Nano Ferdi. Briefly, the realization blanks my mind. If I had cheeks, I would grin widely. 
If I had a voice, I would call out to Sal in triumph. If I had a fist, I would pump it in the air. It doesn't take me long to realize that I can... Directive. Assemble. Have all these things with merely a thought. With a pins and needles sensation of drawing in upon myself, thickening that stops just shy of actual pain, the murky haze coalesces. My torso, my legs take shape inside the containment silo. Our pre-programmed directive functions flawlessly, filling out my shape, the curve of my slight paunch, the dimples in my knees, my broad hands. In moments I can see myself, an elongated, semi-transparent reflection of the inside of the silo. Proprioception has kicked in, and the feeling of having, of owning my body, returns. My cheeks pull into that grin. I pump my fist in the air. I shout out to Sal. It worked, Sal. We did it. But my voice bounces off the glass as if reluctant to breach the silence. And the lab lights remain stubbornly off. And as my vision adjusts to the gloom, I can make out a level of disarray that was unthinkable for Sal and his team. Two stools are toppled over. A clean suit lies discarded. One of the micromanipulators has actually been torn off its base. Our lab, our haven of order and cleanliness, science and reason, looks like it has played catch-up with the outside. Suddenly, getting out of the silo is the most urgent matter in the world. I glance at the keypad. Above it, a note in Sal's cramped but neat hand asks me to calculate the square of the date we first met and input the final five digits. A semi-autonomous subsection of my body gives me the answer, and I input 33849, smiling at Sal's method to ascertain both my mental faculties and my memory as the curved door hisses open. Stepping out of the silo doesn't turn on the lights. When we refitted the lab, we opted for motion sensors because these are easier to nano-seal than switches. When I first saw the darkness, I assumed that Sal had simply been gone for more than ten minutes. But the chaos, and the refusal of the lights to snap on, and I see now the fact that both the inner and outer airlock doors are open, and... Jones' body lies between two lap tables, three bullet wounds close together in her sternum. Our neural net programmer's eyes stare at the ceiling as if pondering an especially intricate coding problem. But they're dry and dead. Leaving the lab, I pass through the scarred and ravaged walls of the airlock, but before I can remember what used to be there, I find Han. Our neurologist hangs sprawled over two bloodied chairs. Good thing the transfer was successful, I think, randomly. Kim who knew almost as much about nanotech as Sal himself, lies halfway into a broom closet. Sal is nowhere in sight. I know it should all shock and worry me, but I feel only a sense of purpose, of urgency, the need to find out what has happened, to discover whether our plans are threatened by this new development, to locate Sal. I find Sal at the foot 
of the university high-rise. His body forms an undignified crumpled heap rising from a puddle of mostly coagulated blood. The sight of his face is squashed into the puddle, a single visible eye staring up at me, its distorted socket creating an expression of quiet incomprehension. One hand is under him, the other shows blistered blackened stumps where his fingers used to be. Glancing up, I spot the shattered window that puzzled me when I searched our floor. Mystery solved, I think, and wince. Carefully I kneel by the puddle, forcing myself to take in Sal's violated shape. As I approach more closely, the faint smell of decay intensifies, grows almost solid, a taste more than a scent. His limbs form jagged shapes. His skull slopes horribly to one side. This is the first man I loved, I remind myself. I recall late-night walks together, that rare surviving wine bottle we shared, love-making both rougher and more intimate than with any of the women I had before him. I call up his smell, the feel of his strong, dexterous hands, engineer's hands, what possessed Moch to murder Sal? We knew he would take me out. That was business, or Moch's version of it anyway. But Sal? And not just Sal, the entire team who spent the decades after the event secretly keeping the Delph Lab up and running against huge odds. Did Moch hate me that much that he would sacrifice the rare and valuable resources of a fully operational nanolab to feed his revenge. The wastage stuns me. I wonder if I should feel more grief. Four days have passed, I noticed upstairs. Four days lost, days we needed. And even without the timepiece in our lab, the greenish hue to Sal's cold skin would have told me enough. Sal was supposed to activate me, Nano Ferdi, directly after my death. With Sal dead and so much time lost, I have very little faith any longer in our original scheme. It seems laughably naive now, anyway. I'll have to take a more direct hand in deposing Moch. And not just Moch, I suspect. It's time for a visit with Mr. Mayor. My feet pound the miles beneath me. The cracked, overgrown tarmac of the Rotterdamsevech becomes a blur of green and dark gray lines. I pass a green and yellow bus overloaded with hopeful migrants. The six-horse team appears to be standing still as the passengers watch me speed by. Some of them even wave. Half a mile south of Delft, the ski has widened into a circular lakelet. Bits and pieces of Moch's launch lie scattered around the new body of water. A few hopeful scavengers nose through the detritus. The acrid scent of explosives still smudges on the air. I see no pieces of myself, and I'm grateful. This is how far my old self came on his doomed trip to Moch. I feel only a distant melancholy 
and an increased sense of urgency that speeds up my jackknifing legs. The down 747 north of Rotterdam echoes the sense that I'm flying. My jeans and shirt flap like loose sails. The wind of my progress screams past my cheekbones, sands my new skin until I fear I'm losing too much of myself. Directive. Armor. My bots regroup and tighten my skin. The air resistance decreases. For a moment, I ponder a directive for a more aerodynamic shape. But no, I'm going fast enough now. And my humanity is dear to me. The crumbling lines of Rotterdam crawl over the horizon like the rotting teeth in the world's jaw. I thunder in among the ruins, startling a huddle of Rotterdammers roasting God knows what over an open fire, breaking apart an improvised soccer game, on through the decrepit remains of one of the proudest cities in the Netherlands, now just a faint shadow of its old self. Rotterdam Harbor used to be the greatest of its kind. Very little remains of its former glory, except the township. The township rises black and forbidding from the harbor basin, the towering letters MSC, jagged and yellowing, like the name Oscar on the stern. It's only after I've passed the last oil silos that I realize I'm going too fast, that my headlong approach could be misconstrued as an attack. I switch from sprinting to a slow jog, but too late. First, the flash from the doorway halfway up the ship's flank, then the dry bang echoing between the silos, and immediately after the impact in my stomach. Acute trauma. Intercept. Divert. That spins me on my axis and throws me onto my back. The slug draws an unpleasant, bright-hot trajectory through my belly and chest. Slow down. Cool down. Before coming to a stop behind my right clavicle. Breakdown. The lead is welcome. I get to my feet slowly, raising my hands as soon as I no longer need them for balance. My gaze follows the gangway up to the ship. I'm relieved to recognize the silhouette still aiming her rifle at me. One of the part-time soldiers that perform guard duties for Mr. Mayor. I think I remember her name. Rami! She does not respond and keeps aiming motionlessly for my chest as I walk towards her with raised hands. She doesn't respond, but neither does she fire again. I hope that means she has seen who I am. When I'm close enough, she confirms my hope with a shouted, You're dead, Grand Allocator. Rami's silent shape docks my heels through the maze of rusty steel corridors, narrow stairs, container alleys, and echoing open stretches of deck that make up the township. The smells of rust and oil and occasional wafts of decay overwhelm the salty aroma of the harbor. Flickering orange light shines from hundreds of square windows. Towards the bow, I hear the screaming of a buzzsaw, the pounding of a sledgehammer. On the township, housing construction never ceases. The people we pass greet Rami, who plods on silently. A few of them do a double take when they notice me. Recognition is usually followed by wide-eyed disbelief. 
Rami's welcome hasn't improved much after her first shock. She has recognized me, but my earlier demise seems at least as significant to her. In my previous incarnation, I used to visit the township and Mr. Mayor quite often, though, and I think that has earned me the benefit of the doubt. When I told her I urgently needed to speak with her boss, Rami allowed me onto the ship. Despite the fact that her first bullet didn't put me down, she keeps her sidearm aimed at the back of my head at close range. We reached the door into the superstructure. Above us, the steel wall of the smudged white monolith reaches towards the sky for several floors. I can just make out a crooked reflection off the tilted windows of the bridge against the star-strewn background. Rami orders me inside by poking me with her gun. I ascend the endless progression of steep stairs chased by the jingling of the weaponry on her belt. The familiarity of each step helps to calm the concern that has been tapping like rain on the tent of my life. Is everything still there? Am I still there? My memory seems intact, but would I even notice if I've forgotten anything? If part of my personality hasn't survived the transposition? And I have changed. Rami gunned me down, and I got up again. It feels like my old self is hiding in a corner of my mind and shaking its head, wondering how I can leave that incident behind so easily. Meanwhile, I'm letting Rami order me upstairs at gunpoint, as if her weapon is any threat. The back of my head tingles and the alertness saturating my limbs can only be called fear. The paradox makes me feel lightheaded, and even that sensation is a personal anachronism. The distributed neural network that houses my mind does not do lightheaded. When we enter the bridge, the voice that greets me carries a bittersweet intimacy. Ferdy? My old lover gets up from the oversized leather office chair behind the dead control panel. She clambers onto the panel and walks towards me with short, decisive steps. Mr. Mayor hasn't changed much in all the years I've known her. Her top hat has suffered somewhat from age and salt, but her unique fashion sense is still evident in the flamboyant Bermuda to her white trousers and the pitch-black top with the white stripe and the barely legible word, Speedo. I walk towards her, arms open in feigned eagerness, and we meet at the near end of the control panel. She answers my widespread arms with her own. I barely notice the armed figures watching from the corners of the bridge before I pull her to my chest. Her arms fold around my sides. Mine wrap themselves completely around her. The gray-black hat tumbles backwards and bounces off the panel. I smell the salty, fresh animal scent of her wild, kinky hair. May, Rami starts... May ignores her and speaks into my chest. I thought you were dead, you son of a bitch. I keep her pressed against me, but something in her tone enhances the suspicion lurking in the back of my head. I know her too well. We've talked too much. Every nuance of her idiom is familiar to me. I draw my first mental tally mark. 
Grabbing her apple-sized shoulders, I hold her at arm's length. With all the affection I can fabricate, I look deep into her steel-gray eyes. Happy to see you too, May. Before she presses her lips to mine, her radiant smile is briefly visible, too briefly to see if it reaches her eyes. I press her closer to me and answer her kiss with appropriate enthusiasm. My sympathic memory seems intact. A multitude of carnal memories bubble to the surface. Then she presses a cold heart shape against the anatomical location of my ribs. I hear the unmistakable metal click of a safety. I barely have the time for the directive we have prepared for just such an occasion. Directive? Quark. Before she breaks our kiss and whispers into my ear. Me too, Verdi. You are dead. We're standing in an impetuous chilly wind, dizzyingly high above the deck of the township, even higher above the water of the basin. With curt gestures, her gun aimed at my sternum, May has directed me onto the starboard external bridge extension. The railing is behind me, access to the bridge far behind May. I shrug. Obviously not. May shakes her head, but the barrel of her pistol remains aimed, motionlessly, on my chest. You boarded. The launch took off. It exploded. You're dead, Ferdy. So you were there. A frown flashes over her countenance before she folds her poker face back into place. I add a vertical line to my mental tally. I was too late. I smile. That depends. You were right on time for my purpose. That statement has the desired effect. May frowns and throws me a sight-long glance, her lips pursed. Then the corners of her mouth lift, and her eyebrows go up. A clone? I shake my head. Growing one would have been too time-consuming. And as far as I know, no one has ever solved the problem of wetware transposition. In that case, her finger curls around the trigger, you now have five seconds to convince me. Nine times, I say promptly, although her weapon is no real threat to me. And if I still had lungs, I'd be holding my breath. What do you mean, na- Oh. With satisfaction, I watch as the blush ruins her cool pose. Bragging about our sexual escapades is no more in her character than it is in mine. And she still remembers how many in a row, though I've never confessed to her that I had to fake the final three. Okay, it's really you. She lowers her gun, and the worst of the tension dissipates from her limbs. Tell me. Let's say, a backup. I had taken very little effort to make enemies after I had been elected Grand Allocator. The energy shortage is simply too urgent, the interests too great. Despite having elected me, not everyone wanted to submit to my vision. I knew Mocha's monopoly on the last oil reserves had to end, and would end, once we got the windmills up and running. 
I promised the people an end to the energy shortage. And that's what I planned to deliver. But you didn't tell them when, Ferdy. Soon. My plan requires preparation, research, engineering. But it can be done, May. My feeble grand allocator predecessors had occupied themselves with the redistribution of meager leftovers, within the limits set by Moch. I thought, and think, bigger. An end to our dependence on dwindling reserves. An end to the power of the mast. To Moch's monopoly on the remaining oil. How? With a handful of ancient windmills? Something like that, I say, and smile. Two years ago. Splashing and foaming, the dilapidated dinghy pushes its way through the surf. Saltwater stung Ferdy's lips. His eyes blinked. The rusty outboard roared, stalled, started. Thick blue smoke wafted behind them. As he pointed to the horizon, he held on to the orange rubber gunwale with the other hand. A bit more northerly, Kim. Kim corrected their course, and the dinghy began bouncing off the endless rows of waves, its engine growling in the rhythm of the breakers. Fog. Verdi glanced at Saladin next to him and nodded, smiling. His engineer would never use two words if one sufficed. He preferred to speak in diagrams, tools, gestures. I think the field is behind that bank. Sal nodded, and Kim opened the throttle. The fog bank grew, and gray-white wisps flashed by left and right. Soon enough, there was less than thirty feet of... <clears throat> the fog bank grew, and gray-white wisps flashed by left and right. Soon enough, there was less than thirty feet of visibility in any direction. Ferdy's stomach tightened and his scalp tingled. Next to him, even Sal seemed impressed. This was the moment. This was what they had been working towards for years. This was why they had illegally taken a tank of gas from the dwindling emergency store. As Grand Allocator, Verdi formally had full authority over the gasoline. The unwritten rule, however, was that it could be used only in the direst of emergencies and no one but he and Sal deemed this an emergency. An enormous vertical silhouette flashed by on their left. Moments later, they skirted a house-sized cylinder on their right. The fog thinned to loosely connected wisps. He caught glimpses he daren't yet believe. Then they broke out of the fog bank, and in the full sunlight the wind farm spread out before them. Kim whistled and he released the throttle. Sal's mouth fell open. The bow sank back into the water. The dinghy rolled and danced. How? How many do you think? Hundreds. Sal's answer ended in an awed treble. Verdi sighed. You know what this means, right? He looked around. Sal took his hand and faced him, his eyes full of affectionate sadness. He drew a finger across his throat. Yep. 
evening. I pull myself out of the memory. There are hundreds, May, hundreds, and they are still turning. Even though the Grand Allocator has absolute authority over the redistribution of available energy and is appointed for life, it's still only one individual. In the uneasy equilibrium between the township and the mast, the Allocator can only act with the approval of both. And considering the disproportionate power of the mast, the reality has always been that the Allocator only performs piecemeal redistribution of the mast's resources and collects the fees. You know better than I do how much of the ship's wealth flows to the mast. I permit myself a small ironic smile as I watch May keep her nodding face pointedly neutral. But do you have any idea what's happening in the hinterlands? I've been there, May. Hundreds die every winter because they can't keep warm. Their harvests flow to the west in exchange for energy, leaving them all but unable to feed themselves. The manifest says the Grand Allocator serves the interests of all. Don't make me laugh. For decades, he served no one but that maniac in the mast. I never had any doubt if I really wanted to make a difference as Grand Allocator. If I wanted to change the remaining ruins of the world, I need to break the power of the mast first. But my lifelong appointment had made me a target more than anything, especially after I made public the first hints of my plans. My own mortality was my greatest obstacle. So first of all, I needed to die. May shakes her head. Why? Think, May. I need time to realize my plans. A lot of time. Years. Decades. Maybe more time than I had left anyway. Definitely more time than Moch would give me. I know him too well, May. He believes himself untouchable in his tower, with his gasoline monopoly and the power that brings. But even Moch can't get away with murdering the Grand Allocator. So to get the people to rise up against him, you let him kill you. And yet, here you are. How, Ferdy? How? I wave away her question and segue into my lie. I expect the mast doesn't know yet that I'm back. But time is short. Moch needs to know that I'm alive, that I'm still Grand Allocator, and that his time is past. But that's a confrontation that needs to happen fast, before he's had time to replace me with some straw man. Her brows knit, and when she speaks again, her voice is cold and curt. So what are you doing here? There is little doubt left of what her next answer will be. The answer itself doesn't even make much difference anymore. The how will be conclusive. With my affectionate expression still in place, I sigh mentally. I know the price for my plans is high and complex, but it would be so much more bearable if this wasn't one of the payments. I need you, May. I don't know exactly how or when yet, but I need you. That's why I'm here. I have one question for you. What? She sticks to her curt tone, but her voice has softened somewhat. My admission of need has had the desired effect. Saladin is dead, eh? After a brief but unmistakable hesitation, she widens her eyes and covers her mouth with her hand. 
She has always remained jealous, but she did like him. Sal is dead, and according to our plan, he was the one who would confirm my identity, my continuity, to you, to Moch, to the people. Only if I'm still alive, if I'm still the person I was, am I still Allocator. Without Sal, you are the only person who can confirm my identity. Can I count on you? She doesn't hesitate. Not at all. Not the minimal pause of surprise about the nature of the question. Not the slightly longer silence of flattered contemplation. Not the hesitation of a true decision. She swallows the lie about my naive, abandoned plan and answers instantly. Of course, Ferdy. For you, of course. I add a third line to my mental tally marks. As I receive her energetic hug, my emotions wrestle with the absence of tear ducts. At the top of the stairs, down to the deck, I pause when she calls after me. A hint, Ferdy. I know what she means. Surreptitiously, I rub my thumb over the inside of the bridge door and leave a smudge of myself. Nano! I call over my shoulder and leave. Night. At the foot of the mast, in the surprisingly clear water of Parkhaven, an exotic palace lies sunken in the muddy bottom, the dilapidated residence of a psychotic Poseidon. I swim around the crumbling pavilion rooftops, whose original orange lies mostly hidden under layers of algae, mud, and garbage. The chaos of tables and chairs behind the broken windows tells me of its original purpose, and part of me wants to stay underwater, investigate the mystery of this sunken restaurant. But I recognize that desire for what it is. Reluctance to confront Moke. And the cold is beginning to slow down my components. I need to get out of the water. I clamber onto the quay that encircles the park at the foot of the mast, finding hand and footholds in crumbling concrete, rusty rebar, holes and slits, and an occasional gecko directive. Leaning my elbows on the edge, I study my surroundings. Rusty car wrecks on pulverized tires litter the water's edge, like crenellations on an apocalyptic water fortress. Beyond the cars, the old tarmac is a mess of chunks, cracks, and rampant greenery. Water leaks from my clothes, between my shoulder blades, through my crotch. Nothing moves. Swimming across the new mass, I've reconsidered and rejected countless approaches. The simplest still seems the most effective. Calmly and openly walk up to the mast's entrance. It may be that I'm setting too much store by Moch's arrogance and curiosity. Maybe that I'm too confident in my own robustness. Perhaps Rami's attempt on my life has made me reckless. But I'm not afraid. I don't believe Moch's people can do me much harm. The absence of any signs of life worries me, though. Moch used to have at least half a dozen of his goons, or soldiers, if you ask him or them, hanging around the entrance, even at this late hour, both as guards and as a show of force. 
Their absence smells like a trap. Another tally mark. Ambush or no, it doesn't change my approach. The chance of Moak having any kind of heavy ordnance is negligible, and by my estimate I can easily cross the distance fast enough. Once I'm near the mast, Moak won't risk explosive damage to his tower. Twelve feet from the glass doors, my error of judgment bites me in the face. Two goons step out of the double doors. The darkness inside rendered the glass opaque. Only now do I make out the upended tables that provide both a hiding place and a defensive barrier inside. I recognize the balding and bearded one. Paul? His partner is unfamiliar. They carry what looks most like fat, ugly rifles, connected with hoses to the double containers on their backs. The odds are shifting against me. Firearms don't worry me, nor do any kind of melee weapons. But fire. Fire is an issue, I suspect. I haven't yet tested the heat resistance of my new body, but my bots are probably too small to last more than a few seconds. Flamethrowers. I make my final mental tally mark. I turn around. A smoking, stinking, yellow-orange flame at least 15 feet long bars my way left. A second flame crosses it, roaring. Facing me, faces shimmering in the heat of the gasoline fire, two more unfamiliar goons have appeared. Their faces, glistening with sweat in the light of the flames, bear broad evil grins as they begin to walk towards me. Shit. Emergency directive? Before I can even begin to compose one, the heat of the approaching flames becomes unbearable. I step back and turn around as the other two flamethrowers roar into life. A shrinking corridor of stinking fire offers only one escape. In through the doors. Paul, or whatever his name is, gestures with his head. The message is clear, and ironically welcome. Swaddled in the flickering heat, I cautiously make my way into the entry hall. The hall has grown to twice its former height since the last time I was here, lit with smoking wall-mounted torches. Next to the double elevator shafts, the ceiling has been broken through to accommodate a treadmill like a giant hamster wheel, its axis penetrating the shaft wall. Five naked, obese figures lie in wait lethargically at the bottom of the wheel. One is snoring, the others climb, huffing and puffing to their feet. I guess Moch doesn't even want to spare the energy to drive his elevators anymore. Inside, Paul and his goons extinguish their flamethrowers. That answers the question I was pondering, and I smile quietly. Moch may have found an effective weapon against my apparent invulnerability, but hasn't thought through its limitations. Willingly, I let myself be directed into the rightmost elevator. One of the soldiers pulls out a two-pronged baton. Walking towards the treadmill, he brandishes the baton and presses a button, making a blue lightning arc between the prongs. Moaning and sighing, the elevator slaves begin to move. He prods the snorer to a jolting awakening. Paul and a second soldier join me in the elevator, which shudders and creaks into motion, 
as the tube lighting comes to life with a glassy tingling. They watch me from under lowered eyebrows, fingers around the triggers of their flamethrowers, the yellow pilot lights lazily licking the nozzles. This would be a good time for an emergency directive, but I don't want to run the risk of a gasoline fire in this enclosed space. I throw the two a crooked smile and wait until we arrive at the top. Moak has converted one of the original hotel suites, 90 meters above the plaza, into his office and reception space. When the elevator lurches to a screeching halt, Paul pulls open the sliding doors and gestures me into the foyer. The double doors into Moak's suite stand invitingly open. As I walk in, Moak jumps to his feet from the faded white leather sofa on the other end of the room. He walks towards me with a broad smile and wide open arms. Grand Allocator! The two goons are still behind me, near the door, their eyes on me, but their flamethrowers aimed carelessly downwards. All the furniture in the narrow deep suite is wood, and the old ratty drapes look plastic. My position is the geometric center of the triangle, with Moch at its apex and the two soldiers spanning the base. I allow myself a small smile. No one will be turning on their flamethrowers in here. Then I burst into action. Moch doesn't startle. I run towards him with outstretched arms, my hands clawed, certain that the goons behind me cannot act. They don't. But Moch holds his position and mirrors my smile. Something is not right. Halfway into the suite, a narrow band of reflective blue metal runs up both walls, across the ceiling, even on the floor, a rectangle of metal and plastic circling the suite like a portal. The portal triggers a memory, but before I can get it into focus, I see an identical portal ahead of me. Moch lifts his hand. He is holding a small black box. He presses a button. An almost subliminal humming commences from left and right and above and below. Behind me something begins to slide with a scraping sound. Two more steps and I slam into an invisible wall. My head is pushed to the side as the rest of my body hits the barrier. Stunned, I shove myself off the invisible wall which hardly gives under my hands. In a flash I see Moch smile, his head tilted to one side. I turn around and my shoulder hits a second barrier behind me. The first portal has slid along the walls towards me and forces me onwards, towards Moch. I swing my left leg and kick forward with all my strength. My naked foot slams. Wait, my naked foot? I'm wearing socks and heavy walking boots. I push ahead once more and this time there is no doubt. My naked foot is blocked by the barrier, while the soles of my sock and shoe pass through. Suddenly I remember where I've seen those blue bands before. Our biggest problem in the nanolab had always been containment. How to keep autonomous, almost endlessly versatile nanoscale robots confined to the laboratory. Keeping their converters disabled at least made it impossible for the bots to go through the walls, but we needed to get in and out ourselves. Kim had invented a force field that allowed macro objects to pass, 
but blocked anything nano-sized. Apparently, Moak had robbed the laboratory before wrecking it. The scraping, sliding sound continues, and I am pushed forward. Moments later, I am sandwiched between two of Kim's nano-barriers. My attempts to retain some freedom of motion have only resulted in getting stuck with my arms and legs spread-eagled. I have often compared Moch to a spider in a web. The irony kills me. Ferdy. Moch halts a few feet from me. When he speaks, his melodious sentences and enthusiastic high notes drip with smug triumph. What a surprise! I thought that bomb in your launch would be enough. But as you can see, I was prepared for disappointment. His laughter reaches only his mouth. I launch a series of silent curses as I explore my options, which are disturbingly few. Everything I am, everything I'm capable of, is nanotech. I don't even carry a macro-scale weapon. I can't even throw a shoe at him because I can't move enough to take it off. I'm stuck. I'm stuck and at the mercy of a gangster boss who has hated me for years. I can at least take advantage of his garrulous mood. Directive. Recording. But even that feels perfunctory. We're not so different, you and I, Ferdinand. You let yourself get blown up, confident that your backup plan would work. And you were right, for here you are. I let you get this far, confident that my countermeasures would work. And I was right. You're trapped. He shakes his head. When I think of what we might have accomplished by joining forces. How did you know? I ask, relieved that I can still speak. His eyes swivel up and left, but I was almost certain he was going to lie anyway. How do you think? You were all high and mighty about fair distribution of energy, but meanwhile, you ran the biggest, fattest cable to the old nanolab in Delft. It wasn't hard to guess after that. The funny thing is, he says as he walks back to the white sofa, that your nanofield is permeable to literally everything but nanoparticles. Everything. He kneels on the sofa and bends over the back. With muffled voice, he continues. People, objects, air, and... With a broad gesture, he shows me the welding torch he just picked up. He lights its flame and twists the knob until the flame turns an icy blue. A welding torch. Portable, controllable, and hot enough to destroy. Moch brings the flame closer and closer to my right hand, squashed immovably between the two nanofields. He focuses the tip of the flame on the base of my pinky. I can no longer feel pain as such, but the innumerable signals of overheating and loss of units are bad enough. My new body screams for flight, while my bots fail by the thousands. The smoke passes through the nanofield, but enough lingers between to irritate my sensors. Much too quickly, he burns through my knuckle and my pinky tumbles to the ground. Moch pulls the flame away from me. 
No blood. Interesting, he mumbles to himself. I'm curious, Ferdy. Did you really think people would care that I killed you? Did you really expect them to rise up? Storm my tower? He takes a lateral step to look me in the eye. Overthrow me? With his eyes slightly too wide, his pupils dilated, and a cramped grin stretching his mouth, I'm horrified. Not that he looks like a maniac, but that he doesn't seem so different from the moke who used to be my friend. I'm not sure anymore he's the one who's changed. But he must have. Because the moke I used to know would never have tortured Sal to learn about our plans. There's been a change of plan, moke. I'm going to overthrow you personally. He barks another of his joyless laughs. <laughs> Is that right? Your odds don't look good. For let's face it, Ferdy, despite your nanobot body and your disturbed wireless neural network and your tricks, you are still human. Instantly, my thoughts begin to race. Without thought, I let my pinky reintegrate with my ankle as Moch's words sink in. I'm still human? Despite all my tricks? He's fucking right. That's how I've acted. That's how I've behaved. Holding on to my human capabilities. Running from the lab to the township. I even crossed the harbor in breaststroke. Holding on to my human form. The same human form that's now stuck between two nanofields. Perhaps half a second has passed since Moch spoke. I order a subsection to formulate a robust emergency directive while I study the wall between the two field generators. Almost instantly, I see what I want to see. Another half-second later, the emergency directive is complete. Hardly any time has passed in Moch's perception. His eyebrows lift. I give him my response. Directive. Loudspeaker. Without moving my lips. Not any longer. My bots vibrate the air. A moment later, my clothes flutter. Emergency directive. Cellophane. To the floor. Cloud dispersion. Target, walls. Target, ceiling. Target, floor. Moke's technicians have done a sloppy job. At no point around their circumference are the blue metal strips of the field generator flush with the walls. The gap is measured in millimeters here and there, but is sufficient everywhere. I slip through while, directive, strip mine, enlarging the spaces to pass through even quicker. I keep some of my optical sensors trained on the middle of the suite. Moke's eyes and mouth gape open now that the man he thought he had captured has dissolved right before his eyes. Droplets of sweat appear on his forehead. His eyes flash left and right before he springs into action. With more courage than I give him credit for, he runs through the double nanofields. Fire! His amused mocking tone is gone. There is only panic in his voice now. The two soldiers stand with stunned stares. Moke wrenches the flamethrower from Paul and opens the nozzle wide. A long, writhing orange flame engulfs the suite. Moch sweeps the fire left and right, and the white sofa and the rest of the furniture ignite. Even the carpeting begins to smolder. Meanwhile, I've slid along the walls to end up behind the soldiers. At the doors, I regroup, directive, sabotage, and wait for my countermeasure to take effect. Moch has withdrawn behind the soldiers, very close to where I'm coalescing into my human form, 
when the second soldier opened his flamethrower. Tiny flames leak from the nozzle and land on the floor. The puddle of gasoline that my sabotage directive has caused to leak from his tanks immediately ignites. The low blue flames spread rapidly and circle his feet, find the path up. He screams when one of his fuel tanks catches flame. Yelling, burning like a torch, he stumbles through the suite and adds his own contribution to the countless fires nibbling on the furnishing. Paul wrestles himself out of his fuel tank's shoulder straps and shoves past Moch towards the elevators. I let him go. Roaring, Moch opens his regulator wide, ignoring his still-burning soldier who stumbles blindly through the inferno. I order my bots, Directive, Diamond, back from their sabotage assignment before they disable Moog's flamethrower as well. The burning soldier sags to the floor. His screaming ceases. Only now do I resume my complete, solid form. And strike out as hard as I can. My arm slams into Moog's head at full speed. He flies to one side in a half-cartwheel and loses his grip on the flamethrower. He ends up against the window, bleeding from his left ear. He sees me and scrambles clumsily to his feet. I kneel to pick up the discarded flamethrower and get up with the nozzle aimed at him. Behind him, a narrow line crawls slowly over the glass. Don't blame yourself too much, Moch. I'm only just beginning to discover the possibilities myself. Just do it. What are you waiting for? After you blew me up, Moch, you looked up Sal, didn't you? The only thing Sal ever wanted was to build, to create. Do you know how long I knew Sal, Moch? Do you know how long I've worked with him? How long he was my friend, my lover? As I speak, I walk towards Moch, and Moch retreats until his back touches the panoramic window. Taking me out I can respect. I was a threat to your empire. That was the first... Taking me out, I can respect. I was a threat to your empire. That was the risk I took. But not the team, and not Sal. You had him tossed out the window, Moch. He wouldn't hurt a fly, and you threw him to his death. Damn right I did. And he screamed, Ferdy. He screamed all the way down. And then he hit the ground with a splat. I aimed the nozzle up and grabbed his throat with my other hand. Do you think you will scream as well? Moch glances behind him. You don't scare me, Ferdinand. That's unbreakable glass. Not anymore. I pull Moch towards me and throw him against the window. The glass bursts along the freshly etched groove, and a large semicircular section topples backwards. For a moment it seems like Moch is gliding out on a wing of glass. Then the window section turns, and he glides off. Moch and window, window and moch, somersaulting together like a binary system. They grow smaller and smaller until they smash into the ground at the foot of the mast in a cloud of shards and blood. The entry hall lies deserted. Apparently my fame has preceded me, carried by the deserted soldier. A few dozen bots make short work of the lock on the treadmill. Get out of here. I don't wait to see if the elevator slaves follow my advice, but walk out. Thirty feet from the entrance, I turn around, point at the mast, and blow across my fingertip. Directive, 
von Neumann self-limiting. A small cloud of bots rises from my finger and flutters to the foot of the mast. Directive, Beaver. It is time for another visit with Mr. Mayor. Rami lets me in with no questions asked and walks me to the superstructure. She succeeds remarkably well in hiding her surprise at my naked, sexless appearance. Moke's clothes didn't fit me. It had been easier to strive for decency through a Ken directive. May approaches me hesitantly, an expression on her face that is hard to parse, of relief, surprise, and fear. Fear of what I'm turning out to be, now that I've returned unscathed from my visit to the mast, or... The answer isn't really a mystery any longer, but I have to know for sure. I rub my thumb over the same spot on the door and listen briefly to the recording before nodding wistfully. Ferdy, you're back! She jumps into my arms and I embrace her reluctantly like I would a smelly dog. What happened? I shake my head. Not here. I cast a pointed look at Rami and the guards. Let's go upstairs. She leads me to the bridge. In the distance, across the Niwe Mass, the mass stands. It hardly surprises me that the fire has spread. The tall tower looks like the carelessly planted torch of a giant. Her sudden intake of breath behind me tells me she has seen it too. Moke is dead, May. Moke's time is over. The time of the mast is over. That's... That's good, Ferdy. But Moch is just a man. His organization won't die with him. The mast is a symbol. A new Moch will rise. The mast shivers, strongly enough to be visible even from this distance. I don't think so. Look. It's hard to tell through the flames, but the movement is growing more severe. A little later, the mast has developed a marked lean. I hope the elevator slaves have escaped in time. May squeaks. The burning disc of the mast's top floor sags to the side, slowly at first, then faster and faster. The flames draw an orange arc against the dawn sky. The mast topples from sight. I'm taking over, I say without looking around. The mast was a symbol, as you say. Moch is gone now. The Euromast is gone. I'm taking over. I turn around. I have loved two people, May. You, when I thought you loved me back, she winces. You and Sal. But Sal was human, and Moch made the mistake of believing I am still human as well. Moch and you, May. Directive, playback. The audio is tinny but clear enough to be understood, and her voice is unmistakable. Moch, it's May. He was just here. He's on his way to you now. The recording falls silent, as if it hasn't caught the other side of the conversation. Not really, no, but he gave me one word. Nano. You were right, it seems. Be careful. Ferdy, I... May raises two imploring hands. I knew I had to take Moch into account, May. But you? You too? 
Have I underestimated your attachment to the status quo that badly? May lowers her hands and her mask. Hatred wrinkles her nose. Fury frowns her forehead. Look around you, allocator. She barks the title like a curse. The world is ruined. Take what you can get. That's all there is. Your idealism? We laughed about it, Mocha and I. She reaches behind her and pulls her pistol from her belt. With a hint of triumph in her eyes, she aims for my forehead. Explosive bullets, Ferdy. And somewhere in that nanocloud is a brain. Humanity has no place for idealism anymore. I scuttle backwards as fast as I can. May pulls the trigger. The gun explodes in her hand. The shockwave shoves me over the control panel. Two windows burst outward in a thousand shards. May is thrown backwards and crashes to the floor, blood gushing from the strips of meat and skin where her hand used to be. Color drains from her face as I get up. She tries to raise herself on an elbow, but sags back into the growing puddle of her blood. I squat near her head. Directive cork, May. I jammed your barrel. I stand back up and step back from the growing puddle. Maybe you're right. Maybe humanity has no place any longer for idealism. I give her a final, wry smile. But you know what, May? I'm no longer human. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And there you go. Huge thank you to Floris. And Roberto, thank you very much indeed. It is an honour. Please come back as quick as you can. That would be fantastic. So that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Like I say, these 491s are a little bit disconnected, but I hope you're kind of sticking around and you hope you're enjoying it. You know, I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to have a chat with Gary to see where, where we are with stories and that and we can come back to the, you know, get back to the, the normal weekly routine. If listen, if honestly, trust us, if you can come and support one Patreon, you know, or or PayPal. Patreon just makes it like so it's monthly and it will just keep on going. It's a it's been a total struggle of late, you know what I mean? And yeah, I, honestly, hey, I get it, I totally get it, you know what I mean? And I'm one of the lucky ones where we we my wife's a nurse and um, 
you know, on the front, not front line, but I'm saying make the water happen, you know what I mean? So we still go to our day jobs, but there's folks out there just, it's in, you know, a desperate state, and I un- totally understand that. But if there's anyone out there that can help, please help. <laughs> there you go. Right, until next time, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm hooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.